0: Mm-hmm. Welcome to the History of on 101 Sessions, I'm Junior Francis. Now, this series celebrates the scale rock, steady, and vintage reggae scene in Southern California and way beyond through insightful conversations with legends and modern day players, including those behind the scene. And so many people working behind the scene, we just couldn't list them. This is the 26th One-on-One Sessions and our 11th in this new podcast series, a podcast YouTube channel format. Thanks to the ongoing support that we get from all our fans worldwide. Today we welcome a gentleman who played a vital role behind the scenes right here in Los Angeles as it has been often referred to as the entertainment capital. He has played a vital role from way back as 1980. Please help us welcome Howard Parr, on Club creator, author, and award-winning music supervisor. Award all along with Fellow author Mark Westman will be participating in a very special and intimate event at the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles on October the 23rd, and we're respectfully asking you to scratch the date down, October the 23rd, that we'll be talking more about during this interview. Howard, thanks for joining us. How are you today, sir?
1: It's an honor to be on. Um, you know what a big fan of yours I am, mate. Yeah. <laughs> a New site 2020. So you're having me <laughs> blushing, man. <laughs> so anyway, well, thank you. It's fun
0: to be with you. Yes, man. Wonderful. Well, your resume is so extensive, I needed a month to read it, not just a couple of hours. <laughs> 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 I said, How can you come from England and accomplish so much, man? This is unbelievable. <laughs> so, tell us though, uh, born and raised in London, yeah that city that sits on the Thames River.
1: <laughs> <Indeed>.
0: <laughs> yes sir, so what was your youth uh, like growing up, as a youth growing up in London, what was it like?
1: Um, I grew up like right on the outskirts of the East End. So it's like, you know what London's like, it's like 12 miles from Piccadilly Circus, you're in the countryside, you know what I mean? So I was in that sort of area um, and you know, went to local schools there, what have you. Um, I mean, in terms it it was a sort of, it was kind of interesting neighborhood. It was right on the border. And I remember, I don't know why I'm remembering this, but when I was doing like a paper round route, as you call it here, when I'm like 12 or something, make some money to buy records. Like the the people on my route were like Bobby Moore, who was like the England football captain. It was all these East End guys. Then there were like, the uh, carbon paper gang who were like these gangsters who have made it rich and had a nice place up there and Uriah Heep were a rock band. So, I, you know, it was just this, you're on the outskirts of all this stuff, but you were feeling London, you know, the heart of it very much. And, um, you know, really everything sort of just hit for me when music really mm-hmm. flew into my life, you know, as a, as a single digit kid, you know, and that, right. that was really the catalyst for everything. Uh, And
0: speaking of music, what music hit you the most as a youngster?
1: Very young. The first stuff I would say would be, you know, not shocking that, you know, a lot of the English bands that were popping along at the time, you know, all the, uh, you know, the sort of the kind of obvious Stones, Beatles, Kinks, um, Small Faces. Um, I, but, Then funnily enough, Millie Small, obviously had My Boy With Lollipop in 64. So that was like the first taste of the music that sort of came to drive my life for a long period. Um, And then really the soul stuff, Mm. Um, Stax had, there was a TV show called Ready Steady Go in England, which I think, well, I know it's available on on, uh, DVD video. You can just find it on YouTube. It was like the coolest music show I've ever seen in my life. And they brought over all the Stax guys, uh, men and women, to play. And that was a huge changer.
0: And you Stax know? is my favorite label, really.
1: Yeah, me too. Label. Hey. Uh, right, right? Yeah, no, exactly.
0: Yes, <laughs> no kidding.
1: Without a doubt. And the, the interesting thing about it, I mean, just to sort of, since you, you, you love it as much as I do, was many years later, When I went to work at Polygram Records I met the Memphis Horns who were like you know (laughs) gods to me you know and became very dear friends with Wayne Jackson the trumpet player until he's sad passing a few years ago but what he told me that was fascinating about that and I think really speaks to like a lot of stuff about being a kid in England in that era especially was that you know we just assumed they were huge in America and they weren't, like they were big in Memphis, but the love that went back and forwards with stacks in England, he said it was like astonishing for them. You know, it was like the whole world opened mm-hmm. up for them after coming over and doing those shows and mm-hmm. being on that show in a way that they just hadn't had before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, the soul side of it just stayed, it still is. I mean, I listened to so much vintage soul you know, a lot of it WWOZ these days. I don't know if you ever listened to that station, but there's some great DJs on there playing old vinyl. Like, you'll never know all the soul songs, right? I mean, you think, get to a point where I was like, oh, yeah, I know all that stuff. But no. you're like, you never know,
0: which is great. <laughs> <made>. Yes, you can. <laughs> so you moved to Los Angeles and never returned?
1: Pretty much, yeah. Why was that so? Well, this was... I mean, besides the weather <laughs> yeah right no kidding right i mean what happened was it was kind of ironic in obviously well not obviously but in 76 london was just going it was horrendous you know what i mean you've got the sort of conservative government sort of just pre-thatcher you would got you know the forced strike, you know, they were trying to break unions. So there was that horror show going on and there'd be mandatory power out I was funny, I was we're getting a lot of those here now, but back then it was like, there'll be mm-hmm. days of it. there would be certain days of the week and stuff. It was crazy. And then, you know, you'd walk into town or go to work or whatever. And there were like IRA letter bombs being randomly dropped on people. And it was a, just a weird time. And what happened was Freddie Laker, this guy entrepreneur, started an airline. Uh, basically, cheap airline.
0: I remember. L.A. To
1: London <laughs> round trip, two hundred pounds back in that era, which was a lot, but it was reachable suddenly for a kid like me, where it never would have been before, you know. Right. Right. I had to book way, way in advance. Um, I think like six, seven months on these tickets. So I booked it. You know, at some point, you know, mid to late '76, and I was like tossed up. There was like a suit I really wanted at this place that made the coolest suits. So I was like, oh, this. Is so I bought the ticket, and then punk happened. <laughs> like, right? It was like, I mean, I would say it hadn't been a, <laughs> a bit of broom, but the bands really suddenly would start to play, and you know, the bin bands like Eddie and the Hot Rods and those kind of precursors, Doctor Feelgood, that had an edge. That was missing, you know. But a lot of the big British bands had obviously migrated, tax exile, whatever, and they were all just removed from us. Everything felt very removed. So the irony was right when London was becoming really like, the, you know, the early part of '77 was crazy, you know. And I came over here spring '77, right after all the Bill Grundy Sex Pistols stuff. That was right in the. I think it was about right in the aftermath of that. Um, but I just fell in love with Los Angeles, you know, when I got here. And I really did never learn, I never left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so speaking in about falling in love, uh, what was the music scene like upon your arrival here?
1: You know, on the surface, it was horrifying. You know, I mean, you it felt like getting in a bad time machine. Like you'd put and growing up in England I don't know about where, when you were growing up, but and but we just were always hearing like FM radio was great. And you can get here and it was all Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, you know what I mean? Led Zeppelin, like Led Zeppelin it was like, we'd forgotten about Led Zeppelin, you know what I mean? So the surface of it was horrible, um, but underneath the surface, once you got into it, there was some, you know, there was some interesting bands around. I mean, the nascent sort of LA punk thing um, was going on um, and, so there was some, it was this, there was the Sunset Strip side of it, which to be honest with you was a laugh, you know what I mean? It was kid coming over like, it was wild, you know? And it was like cheap, easy, we just had a good time. I mean, it was just playground, you know? So I had the best time on the music front, um, you know, and there were good, <laughs> you know, there were a few good, I mean, the first show I ever saw in the U.S. was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers at the Whiskey with this local band, The Quick, who I, came to love opening for them. so it was stuff like that and the, the great thing about LA that ended up being a bonus was that all the English bands that I love were come and start I got here and they were coming here too so you'd see them at places like the Whiskey primarily the Roxy and they'd do two shows a night in these pretty small clubs mm-hmm. where some people were playing like you know, theatres or, you know, bigger, you know, Santa Monica civic type places. So you were seeing this phenomenal music from England and you were here and, I was, and it was actually fine, you know, <laughs> um, but a lot of what I was excited about, to be honest, was what was coming here more than what was here with, with a few significant exceptions, you know.
0: Right. So what was it like for you um, leaving your family, friends, perhaps your parents at that time? and uh, come in here uh, you um, can buy yourself you said very little money
1: yeah yeah it, it was an adventure you know and i i just you know honestly i left home very young i started work i went to you know i was couldn't wait to leave school like school in england was horrifying
0: I think school everywhere is <laughs> but right. you know, so, yeah.
1: I mean all the sort of in that, like,
0: David, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean you know it was like the whole thing of the, you know I mean look I was just driven by music and, mm-hmm. you know and don't get me wrong like I went to work at a PR company in Soho at 16 and, you know and actually in a weird way career stuff started great and I got really good opportunities and was enjoying it up to a point um, but yeah it was and no it's hard it's really hard to explain like i was ready for something else Mm -hmm. and i think that the clash in particular sort of galvanized me and a lot of people not just musicians but other people to like this is like like horrible get up and do something with your life. Don't sit around and complain about it. Go up and do something. And, and my form of doing that ended up being here. Where there was, look, when you first get here, there's a certain cynicism, I'll be honest, like as an English kid and people are like, everyone's everything's great. And you're like, you know, it was, it was a little, you know, every have a nice day of it was, was sort of jarring to a point. But then I realized there's an optimism here. Mm-hmm. Uh, How about
0: your parents? Did they give you their blessings or did they discourage you?
1: Um, I don't think they knew I did. I mean, to be honest, I was not a great teenager. You know, (laughs) I wasn't really listening to anything. Um, The only person I listened to is my uncle um, who had been been overseas and great guy. also took me to my first Man United match <laughs> as well, which I never know would have thank him or cursing for all that emotional upheaval for the rest of my life, but no, I love him. But he said to me one thing before I left and he was like, look, just bear in mind, no one invited you. So don't go there complaining because I don't know, you know, there's guns or there's this or that, or there's no health insurance whatever. He's like, just, go, and if you don't like it, leave, but don't go over there sitting around being English and complaining about it. And I was, and I, he was the only guy I listened to, and I was like, and I always believed that, you know, and I never, I, I just had a great time with it. And, you know, the, the point being that even if the positivity wasn't hugely, um, you know, the, from the depths of sincerity about stuff with every single person here, you know again jumping forward a little bit but like let's just say for example we're talking about the club right if i'd said i was going to do that with no money whatsoever in london
0: it would never happen.
1: people will give you 10 everyone will be like give you 10 20 reasons oh that one never happened you know it's that that air and you know at that age you know i was like i was so convinced but also it's nice to have that atmosphere around you where people <coughs> are like yeah let's you know why not and I, that's what I loved about Los Angeles. Plus for me, the noir side of it, the architecture, I grew up reading like all the kind of Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, you know, all those great not noir authors and the old films, the 40s stuff that I love so much. And it was still sort of here a little bit. So I had all <laughs> that, that really, um, you know, I was caught up in it and it was so, it was just different. It was, you know, you couldn't get more different really than London and LA. And it's just. It was just. I. I mean, you know. When did you? How old
0: were you when you came over? What well, how old. I. About. So I was. Um, I, mid. Early to mid twenties. So right. I. I made like five trips. The longest yeah. I've stayed was twenty-one days in London. My dad lived in um, Clapham. Yeah. And he was just uh, a few, I guess, miles from Brixton.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. So. I went enough that I could drive. I could drive around. <laughs> and I knew how to catch the bus, because my dad worked on the bus, so I was always on the bus. Yeah. So I just, I had a key for his house. I would just, um, I wouldn't tell him I'm coming. <laughs> so he'd come home, say, hey, somebody leave the door open. Is somebody in the house? That was me. <laughs> so I made a few trips there. So I traveled, I would say, quite a bit around. Uh, I was there when the punk scene was coming in to be, yeah. I was there when Bob Marley was supposed to make that first trip. I was moved to tears when I saw Big. This is after context now, you know, big banner of Bob Marley coming.
1: Oh and, man! And they said this is a
0: <laughs> it's going to be an upscale place, a big place, you know, not in the ghetto. I said, "Wow, reggae music is taking off in Court, London." I, I eh?
1: remember seeing him at Earl's Court in London. Eh? Say it again. I saw him play at Earl's Court in London.
0: Uh huh. Right. So that was seventy-six or seventy-five.
1: Yeah, it might have been, it was, I think it was, you know, I'm not, it was, it was in that minute. I remember, Yeah. I remember like, I would say 75 probably.
0: Right, okay. So I was here just before his arrival and they yeah. were placards, Post I've never seen for a reggae show in New York, but um there was everywhere, everywhere, all over London, big banners said, Wow, yeah. reggae from Jamaica. Yeah, I mean, it uh-huh. was,
1: that was like the you know, I think, yeah, I mean, it was honestly to me it was great, but it wasn't a surprise because it just felt, well, for
0: me it was right because I'd never seen it, it right. be there, you know, <laughs> yes, uh-huh.
1: years, you know, really going back to 72, I think, you know, in truth, mm-hmm. with Mali, that is, you know,
0: right. So, I, I, I after the end of the 80s, I haven't been back, which is unfortunate. But I was talking to a friend yesterday, and I really want to revisit yeah. London. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: yes. I went back a lot for a period, especially when I was working at a label, because, you know, there were offices there, so I would go on work and then just extend outwards, you know, through the 90s a lot. But, yeah, I mean, I, I actually really love London right now. Um,
0: oh, yes, I loved it back then, too. Just so the cold, <laughs> and it was almost always, <laughs> always cold. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've only gone in September. I usually go in the summertime because um, after September, it's really cold. And I didn't think that I want to go from New York where it's very cold in the wintertime to a place. So always in the summertime. So I've never yeah. experienced winter in London, but a lot of rain. You never, you, the clothes, you'll be walking, nice day in the clothes, just open and rain.
1: I'll tell you, like, and maybe we, this is such silly shit to get, get into, excuse me, but like the rain thing, I remember one the day, actually, pretty well now. It just brought it back to me when I was like, i got to get out of here. And I've got like this new suit, I think, from Granny Takes a Trip, this cool, like rock and roll clothing place. And I was walking down, I was living in the East, East London at this point, with me and some friends got a house when I was about 16, 17, something like that. And so I'm walking down the street to the tube station and it's, you know, it's probably about a mile, got my umbrella out, got this nice cool suit on, I'm feeling good, you know what I mean? And then the umbrella blows, literally it's so windy on top of it. the umbrella blows inside out, like just sort of shattered like that. And you're like, okay, so and you're drenched. <laughs> then you get on the tube, which I'm sure you did, right? And you just imagine in rush out and it's just hot and <laughs> sweaty and just huge just gross. You get there and you drive, Then you walk down from your office and you sink soaked again. I'm like, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> enough
0: know? is enough. <laughs> and then from there, you came to Los Angeles where it doesn't rain. <laughs> it yeah, doesn't pretty rain. much,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: yes, sir. Boy, well, we, we got off track, we got sidetracked. But um, so I'm there were several I'm Southern in California venues synonymous with in the 80s. 80s. Um, from the Reseda Country Club, Palomino, the Valley, Hollywood uh, Clubs, the Whiskey, so many clubs. Um, can you tell us about some of the clubs that were playing reggae? I, I can mention uh, when I came here, uh, I remember Fenders in Long Beach, uh, and then you, uh, the Aunt Club, on about what time the Aunt Club in Silver Lake came into being in relationship to the other clubs?
1: Um, We were, well, the whiskey was always there, you know, and a great club. Mm -hmm. Um, The country club, which was much bigger. um, Yes. The country club changed a lot in Los Angeles and then Perkins Palace, I would say, because up to that point, all the bands, you know, that would come through, had been playing the Whiskey or the Roxys, The Clash played the Civic, which is 3,500 people, but the rest of them, and they were doing two shows a night. So you'd get the first show a night was industries mm-hmm. industry, late kid, kids, 11.30 show. And it was phenomenal to see them in small places. And it was also easy to get there. Whereas the country clubs out in the valley, Perkins Palace is, you know, Pasadena and they were much bigger places and because they could pay more and they got they were you know over twice the size it sucked a lot of the business into those other venues
2: oh
1: um, cool. and the bands only had to play once a night instead of twice right so i'm sure they liked it but i i felt like it lost a little bit of edge at that point you know it, mm-hmm. just a little i mean not that the whiskey went out of business don't get me wrong i mean they were still having bands but i liked that I've always loved the small club, you know.
0: But well, my impression is that people prefer to play the whiskey because it's in the entertainment cap- capital of the world, as opposed to on the outskirts, even though the money might yeah. be better. Yeah, outskirts.
1: absolutely. I mean, huh? we've seen the- is it's that true. your understanding
0: that people rather be in LA, city I think, center?
1: I think it's look the excitement of it and the whiskey. Look, we all knew what the whiskey was as kids. You know, I mean, the whiskey was famous. The Roxy. Not, I didn't know about the Roxy. I came funny enough. No, Roxy, I meant to
0: say the, the, the Ro- Roxy. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, not the, the Ro- whiskey. Yeah, the Roxy. Yeah, the Roxy was nice. I mean, it was nice. It, it was, it still is. It's, it's really the same, you know. The well, I haven't been in there lately, but it, it last time I was there, it was pretty much the same as it's ever been, which is really nice. And, you know, of course, in London, there was the Roxy Club, which was the absolute opposite that, you know, where Don Letts would DJ and all the, punk right? Bands yes, play. sir. <laughs> You know, it was a very short lived thing, but it was the best. That was the best punk moments. Mm-hmm. My favorite punk moments are in that joint. But, yeah, I think those. I don't remember a lot of. Reggae stuff playing here. When we opened, um, I mean, Bob Marley had played. I feel like he played UCLA. If I remember correctly, um, in around, would have been a, probably in 1980, like when Uprising was out. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I was in the East Coast, so I wouldn't.
1: Yeah, I yeah, know, but the, those, those venues, I don't remember. I mean, look, obviously, it, when we get into the two-tone thing, those bands' specials and madness were playing Perkins Palace and, but they'd all come to the whiskey first. This was, it was like their second trips. Mm-hmm when they came back. So the whiskey, the whiskey was painted, the first time the specials came through, I think if I remember correctly, it was the end of 79, and was galvanized in time for me to start the club, honestly. The, the, their label Chrysalis had done some deal with the whiskey and the whole place was painted checkered, black and white. It was like, you walk up that was like, oh my God, this was like, and you know, a first time through, there was such an energy to them that I think spread, call everyone got it right away. Like I like to think, you know, obviously we, I was I was hugely influenced by it, but you could feel it. People connected very quick to the social political stuff. Mm-hmm. It. Right. It, it just had something that, you know, to me at that point, punk was, you know, getting a little bit identikit to a degree, you know, um, other than Clash and you know certain other bands but anyway so that was really it but I don't remember much reggae being in LA I think you know truthfully East Coast and other areas of this country always played more I would say New York probably always had more reggae and soul stuff a lot of those great soul bands some of them that were still playing didn't come to LA much I mean mm. for whatever reasons they weren't booked
0: yeah. back well, it's inevitable that LA would, uh, New York would have more uh, reggae because of the large Caribbean community. community yeah. yeah, no, right
1: I I, get, I I understand it, and not to say there wasn't a community here because a lot of you know there were there was uh, a happy, good amount of Jamaicans would come to the on club, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, so. Yeah.
0: Right. Interesting. You mentioned the Ant Club. So how did you meet uh, on uh, Bob Silver?
1: Bob, um, what happened was my girlfriend at the time, then wife, now ex-wife, <laughs> um, Julie, she, someone had told her that this guy needed someone to book some punk bands. Mm. And so I went and met him and at the Filthy McNasty's, which was this little joint, right? Well, it's actually where the Viper Room is now. Um, and he had got this place called the Oriental Nights, which was a Vietnamese <coughs> sort of restauranty club thing. And it was on its last legs, basically. And he wanted someone to go in and revamp it. so. I just, by this point, you know, i had been obsessed about the specials and Two Tones since the, you know, the day the record, the day Gangsters came out. Yeah. I mean, I heard it and I was like, it was a life-changing moment for me, truthfully. I, was, I knew I wanted to do a club at that moment. And what had happened for me was that you'd go to the Whiskey or the Roxy or anywhere else in LA, and you'd get to see this great band, but there'd be like an old hippie DJ playing the Doobie Brothers. So you'd walk in there. No relationship, no connection. No you just stand there like, oh, this is awful. And then a great band would play and then it would go back to, you know, I don't know, pick your 70s band you don't really like that much. And no offense to these bands. I mean, it would be like, honestly, no, I've got a soft spot for someone now. But at the time, it was just so incongruous. So what I wanted to do and what I basically went on to a rant to bob about was, there were also a lot of clubs at the time, like sort of Madame Wong's, these places where there'd be five bands a night, they'd all be just these hodgepodge bills and it'd be like, bring people in, you know, they had to get certain numbers of people in to sell drinks and all this stuff. And I was like, I wanna do any of that. And I don't wanna do punk either. <laughs> and my argument about punk at the time was that the hardcore thing had started to kick in here, which at that point, was in a very sort of misogynistic violent male you know it was like you just see it I'm like look you don't want this stuff you got a club do you want that sort of violence every night I don't want to be I don't want I don't want to be I just don't you know it's it, it was really sort of you know it was just the crowd like a lot of those kids were like you know, they'd probably been playing high school football a few months before, and now they wanted to be in a mosh pit, you know, and it was just, I just found it really <laughs> boring So I went on to a rant about him, and I go, look, this scar thing is new to people here, even though it's got a deep history, and the specials, and the two-tone thing is the most forward-thinking music. It's going to be huge, you know, and we could do one band a night and but play records like you know ska, soul reggae um and it's gonna work i you know i was like look i've seen the shows at the whiskey and you can feel something's going on here and we'll be first no one else is doing it and you know truthfully <laughs> you know look i think he he didn't know what scar was you know what i mean he's honest enough to admit that But I, you know, look. I was, I was. It was probably a mix of me just being absolutely certain, like I had no doubt in my mind this was going to go right, and I was very obsessive about it and um, convicted. And he was kind (laughs) of desperate. Right, 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 right. That's what
0: we call the rightness of time, the rightness of place, the rightness of moment.
1: (laughs) Just needed it in the moment, and (laughs) that was it. Yeah,
0: that was the beginning. So, why did you place emphasis on scare?
1: i you know, look, I always, you know, as a kid, I was always excited by what's next and coming and, you know, the new, the sounds of the new. And when I first, the minute I, the funny thing was I was actually dressing some of those old clothes. Cause I mean, going back to England, as much as I was broad in my taste, you know, I loved the scar stuff, you know, I mean, all the Trojan stuff when, you know, we were, God, it was great. And, you know, I wasn't, I liked the clothing. I wasn't in some of the skinhead aspects, the skinhead was not, like, I'm not into, I never got my head shaved or anything, but I liked the clothes. And I was wearing that stuff, weirdly, just just a sort of bit of a reaction to the punk Identikit thing when I first heard Gangsters. I was like, or first saw the picture of Gangsters, uh, uh, you know, their their press pick. So I just thought that two-tone was the most forward thinking but great fun but there was stuff being said in those records you know they were important i think they hit people you know obviously hugely in the uk but people connected to that stuff here you know i mean it drew a lot of outside mix of kids to that club very quickly that was i've been you know i never thought about it in the moment truthfully but looking back and people have talked to me about it there was such a mix of people in there, all mm-hmm. just having like an incredible time. And it was everyone. And it was the most, you know, it was the only really diverse club in LA. Interesting. And I don't take credit for that. The music was what was drawing people in and we embraced it, you know, cause I just wanted it to be, you know, it was fantastic.
0: And you know, so- one uh, song that I highlighted and really inspired me, uh, Freenel's Mandela. Yeah because mm, yeah. the anti-apartheid movement was yes. an all-time yeah. high during that time
2: yeah
0: uh-huh. so a lot of progressive djs if they didn't play um punk or skinhead yeah. or skia or reggae they yeah. would play that song everyone felt comfortable mm. interesting mm-hmm. yeah it was
1: yeah, it was it was a deeply emotional song even for you know some people removed from the process of what the yeah
0: situation. the arrangement is so captivating
1: yeah it's it's it just pulls at you mm-hmm. emotionally even if you didn't know who he was truthfully you could probably feel like you know some songs it just gets the spirit across whether you really know even if it's a foreign language or something you know it's just anyway but obviously people did know who nelson mandela was but um uh,
0: uh, not very many. you'll be surprised really? <laughs> no <laughs> no sir. no a lot of people didn't know who uh, at least n- 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 no, he wasn't that well known, but there, uh, thanks to the special, so worldwide recognition. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So I want to ask you: How did you find the Arizona-based Skiaban Extremes? How did you oh, contact with so them?
1: glad you asked about them. I've and been,
0: Arizona, uh, five places.
1: You know, it was crazy. I basically, you know, it was the funniest thing. I mean literally when we opened, there was really just the Box Boys were the only LA star band, right? And I just felt like bands would form, you know? We were booking a lot of, you know, soul people, reggae artists. Um, There was quite a lot of local reggae bands as I came to find out, and all were forming, you know. Um, And I got this cassette in the mail from Fiend. And I, I just was like, I don't know. It was just, it was so unexpected first uh, on any level so I I put it on and I'm like oh my god this is it this is like this is exactly
0: what you're looking for <laughs> what
1: I'm looking for and so I contacted them the club opened in may 80 mm-hmm. and <laughs> I got that tape probably about a month later so it was the whole thing was just Beautiful, you know, and they came in July and Bill Bentley, who's gonna be with us on the Grammy panel, mm-hmm. was LA Weekly music editor at the time. And Bill had come from Austin not that long ago and was, you know, just coolest, soulful, lovely guy and just gravitated to the on-club. So he wrote this piece for us about the extremes. There was a thing called scoring the clubs back those so, days because literally, we literally, our budget was forty dollars a week. We had a little ad in the LA week that was it, and flyers, you know, and that was a powerful thing. You know, it's obviously we're pre-internet days here. You know, it was very much like you'd read that stuff and see what was going on every oh, week. Yes, that was what yes. you would look at, and got there that night. Well, obviously the soundtrack, but you know. I went back. I think I went back down after sound check. It was like a line round the block before we'd even opened.
0: <laughs> I mean, so how did people know about them? But just by the ad?
1: No one knew about them. Like no one knew who they were. They'd never had a song out. They'd never played a gig here. They didn't have a record out. They would, you know, send me, you know, just rehearsal tapes, more or less. I think if they, were, I don't, they only think they were demos. But they just, I was just like, ah you know, dream, dream band. And I think at that point, the club had hit very quickly because mm. people, you know, my big thing was to make it special. You know what I mean? And so we only right. did as much as Bob wasn't thrilled about it. I was like, we just need to keep it weekends. You know, when these clubs get every night, it's just, you know, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Make it special. And the records that we played, or I played, you knew what you were going to get. If you're into mm-hmm. that kind of music, it wasn't going to be something else. You were going to get different record songs every week, but it was going to be in those musical worlds, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, and, and give would... us
0: a for instance, what would you play? For those who... Give us a, an, a for instance, what would you play?
1: Um, you know what I'm, I'll do afterwards, I'll send you a, a little playlist. No,
0: just for the benefit of uh, the viewers.
1: But I mean, essentially, look, there would be, there would be, I'd often start the night with dub, you know, while people were coming in, um, you know, um, big youth, I love big youth, you know, and that would probably be early in the evening. And then as people sort of came in the sort of dance floor, it just moved up tempo, you know, I'd obviously hammer the specials record, the English beat. Um, the, there was a great Spanish language version of Madness is One Step Beyond. I got on a flip side of a single. And because and we were in a Latino neighborhood and these kids were sort of, you know, kind of curious. So they would come in and that, that was just like acknowledgement of them. And Floor went crazy for that. It's a great version. I mean, <laughs> and they, you know, the, the it's just brilliant. I've been trying to use it in a film for years. <laughs> anyway, um, then we would play the old, you know, Scar stuff, original Scar stuff, you know, a lot of t- a lot of um, Trojan stuff, anything, you know, and then a lot of soul, you know, would play the Stack stuff. Um, and older reggae stuff, you know, played like contemporary Bob Marley, obviously, Uprising like was out that year. Yeah. Um, and just you know, it was sometimes you, didn't, you just read. It, you know, look, you you know better than I do. You've been doing this a lot longer than I ended up doing it for. That's for sure. It's, no, but I know. don't
0: think that was happening anywhere else
1: in no, it was, perhaps no. west of the Mississippi River. You know. Yeah, I'm you know, just guessing. I'm a, you know, and look, Mark's... That sort of mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, exactly. I don't think so. And I don't. I don't think you know. I mean, I, I'd like to say we may have been the first club really dedicated to Scarve, probably in that. In not ever, but in that upswing when people started to rediscover it again, and so when they were come, when the extremes came, there was the crowd were waiting for them you know, when he wrote the piece just, you know, on them, it was just everything coalescing at once, you know what I mean it was like, we'd, we'd, we were flying there, we were crowded anyway, but it was just the extraordinary, it was a huge crowd that night outside so early. And there was just an excitement building all around it. So I think it was good for, it was a very mutually perfect thing for the extremes Mm -hmm. and us. And I'm really, really glad you brought it up because I feel like there was so many, they're a kind of forgotten band and they were so great. I'm telling you, like I just, I wish I had film that people could see because it was riveting, riveting.
0: Wow. Yes, sir. Which is a fantastic segue. Uh, let's talk about the Box Boys and their significance to the Los Angeles ska scene.
1: Um, yeah, I mean the Box Boys. I mean, look, they're still dear friends, and I, I've got a deep, you know, regard for them. They they had formed. They were playing gigs before we opened. They were the only band. They were the only ska band around in LA at the time, and I'd seen them and really liked them. So. I I, we'd already sort of become semi-friends and their manager, Mm -hmm. Perry Watts Russell, I was on to the minute I knew I was doing this. I'm like, you need to be in there right away. And they were booked, you know what I mean, to start. So it was like, I would, otherwise I would have opened, they would have maybe been the opening night band, but um, they they were just great. And they're, you know, I just, the spirit of them. And funny enough, you know, during writing the novel, I went back and I was listening to stuff. You hadn't heard it in a long time. Man, this
0: stuff holds up great, you know? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What other uh, scare mod groups were around in the early 80s? I know uh, the targets uh, from some research I've done, the scankers uh, the untouchables, uh, am I right? In yeah, those? Yeah, As well, early well, LA band?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, or so-
0: Southern <coughs> California then?
1: Yeah, I don't know when the Toast is formed, so that I'm not. I'm going to defer on that one.
0: No, um, not the, the targets, not the toast targets.
1: Excuse be, me, I beg your pardon. The targets. I think
0: be, the, yeah, the toasts are East Coast. I mean, would yeah, be yeah, specifically yeah. I, the I, Southern I, California
1: area. I what happened was in terms of the Untouchables, those guys. I, I still say kids, and I've realised none of us are kids at this point. But they they would be club regulars. They were all there on the dance floor and um you know at a certain point and i I've, I've gone back and forth with this in my mind and i'm never quite sure whether terry or clyde gave me their rehearsal tape but they were like we've formed a band and can we play and i so obviously you know we found a date for them and um they they were really i think I feel like they were next. You know, I mean, most of this was 81. I they, 80, I don't think any of those, I think those bands formed, I know that Untouchables formed in 81. I would probably say the same in that pocket. The Skangsters played a lot. The Mm -hmm. Untouchables played a lot. Targets played a lot. I feel like that that was more, that wasn't the, I don't think any of them were the first year. Mm -hmm. It took a while. Took it a little bit longer than I thought, but I guess they were all rehearsing and writing songs. <laughs> <Right>.
0: And what <laughs> reggae groups uh, did you work at regularly or so to speak book during that time? Yeah, the,
1: the Babylon Warriors mm-hmm. were probably the preeminent band at that point in Los Angeles. And they played, they were already well in existence and they came mm. and played and they were just top notch, man. The singer, the original singer for that band I never quite got, I mean, I I don't know what his life path was, although I know the Babylon Warriors, when they had him, man, he was like, so charismatic, just on a a level, like superstar level, Mm -hmm. charismatic. And um, it was a shame because they, you know, I don't remember how long he was in the band for, but. He was just something else. He was Jamaican, if I remember correctly. Most of the guys were from Belize. I think.
0: Right, that much I can remember. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, but um, he was just, he was on another level. And they were always a great band. I mean, it wasn't just about him. It was just that when they had a great that great band and him, mm-hmm. I was like, they're going to be big, you know? Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. There was Zef and the Raiders, Dell and the Sensations, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was. Uh, I should have thought about this a bit more. Um, I don't want to forget people. You know what I mean? But no, is that no easy? <laughs> um, the, the Rebel Rockers.
0: I was going was, to mention them. The
1: Rebel Rockers. <laughs> yes, um, were a great band. And funny enough, I just, um, I just talked to Princess for the first time in like the odd <laughs> forty years <laughs> about a week back, but she's going to come. Um, nice to come we've got to we've got to make sure we get her a ticket but um they they were great they were really fun (laughs) and they were always they were a top top top-notch band she's great sis right
0: and what celebrities attended the Unclub? if you can mention or something yeah did they attend
1: um the yeah you know the funny thing is i was kind of oblivious at the time because we didn't comp people you know like if someone was getting in because they didn't have the money, like it'll be some kid who didn't have, you know, be put standing there with their quarters and not having a right to go and get in. You know what I mean? But we, um, we didn't really do. It was very anti-sort of. I don't say it, it was wasn't anti-celebrity. It just was. There was no velvet robe, You know what I mean? It wasn't that right. kind. Of, it was a reaction against all that. And um, that was
0: deliberate on your part.
1: It was very deliberate.
0: Yeah,
1: Hundred percent deliberate. That's I right. didn't want any of it. And we didn't even have we didn't have a bouncer inside
0: mm-hmm.
1: we had a guy on the door who really was just making sure people didn't sneak in and go and not go mm-hmm. the ticket window and there was very little trouble there mm-hmm. um not none but nothing you know not the sort of stuff you were seeing around in cl- right. clubs at that point mm-hmm. um and lawrence fishburne used to go um he was uh friends with some of the box boys. So he would go. I didn't find out until like 15 years later, but Jodie Foster used to go and really liked the club. Um, And there were like nascent sort of filmmakers like Alison Anders. Most of the people that came like that, I found out about later. You know, they had me, <laughs> like 20 years ago, like, just go to your club. You go, you did? You know, I mean, cause I wasn't really paying attention. You know, I, was, right. I had so much stuff going on. I was DJing. I mean, people would show up sometimes. I remember like Tom Waits and Ricky Lee Jones arrived one night. And I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I'm talking to, you know, I was th- trying to think of actors. There were a bunch of other actors when uh, Emilio Estevez and people like that would drive out. And again, some of this stuff I just found out later. But, so a, a lot of those young actors would would come, but in a mm-hmm. cool way, you know, they were either on a band's guest list or they'd pay to get in. And, you know, I was, it was, it was very um, I don't mm-hmm. know, democratic like that if you want, but um, yeah, I think that um, by and large, yeah, Rick, the, 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 <laughs> the Ricky Lee Jones and Tom Waits one is funny because they they got to the curtain. There was like this ratty curtain you'd pull it, you. you buy your ticket, right? And then you'd pull this ratty curtain aside, you'd be in, walk in. And it was, you know, it was a tiny you know, was a tiny joint. It was a very low stage. You know, I mean, your bands were, you know, you could, you were more like, you could, what was great, like there's some like the extreme you know, She's eyeball to eyeball with people. You know what I mean? They're singing in your <laughs> face and kids would wander on the stage. And it was, it was a relay in there you know? And mm-hmm. So Tom and Ricky Lee Jones, out the curtain, she looks at him and goes like does this not Not
0: upscale enough
1: (laughs) well I don't know she just was like I I want no part of it you know what I mean I I mean I don't know either of them personally so but they have this big argument right Mm -hmm. she leaves and he stays (laughs) (laughs) he stayed all night (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but you know bands would you know look we did do a certain amount of promotional things around bands we liked, record releases, you know, we did one for the special second record and, you know, people like Deborah Debra Harry and the Blondie people would come and if we, that's as other artists, you know, I'm not talking about actors and how we're defining celebrity, but there was a lot of different people went through there, you know, mm-hmm. um, weirdly, while I was doing the book, someone had sent me an image, Andy Warhol shot outside there one night, um, but i'm pretty certain he didn't come in i think he must have just been heard about it and did some pictures outside because that's what it sort of looks like but um that was kind of yeah. interesting to find out all these years later yeah. so honestly it's hard to say people who are in there but i'm i'm happily whenever i hear someone else was there and uh, you know especially um you know people like Lawrence fishman and jodie foster I so admire them as uh, you know artists and, and really cool mm-hmm. actors and Filmmakers, so um, yeah. You know, anyway, but yeah, but it was it was a malay and it was hard to tell mm-hmm. who was in there most of the time, right?
0: So sadly and regrettably, uh, why did the Unclub close?
1: You know, I mean, I think I, I just like to put it like this: is every great club, and I mean, with all whatever, I believe it was a great club, had their mo has its moment in time. You know what I mean? It, it it's great. And then time to end, go out, you know, gracefully, I mean, you know what I mean? That's how I looked at it was, uh, it was time, you know, I'm not saying we didn't have a lot of issues with the law enforcement people and the fire department, because I never stuck to an age limit. You know, I grew up in London, like I wanted teen energy in there and that bought it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> A fair share of issues and trouble and visits and mayhem um, but you know at the end of the day it was time you know what I mean it was mm-hmm. a perfect at yeah. this moment and nice to just remember it that way.
0: Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough from there you went on to become a publicist for several top clients including MTV, NWA, uh, Jimmy Cliff, it doesn't get any bigger than that, uh, media relations executive, I think you also work with Bonnie Whaler. Tell us about uh, work also with Polygram Record. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. Talk about your experience and how you made that transition.
1: You know, i had done some PR in London, um, you know, in, when I first, when I left school and after the sort of club thing, you know, club thing's not exactly the healthiest lifestyle, you know what I mean, on many levels. Um, and so I got a job working as an independent publicist. And um, it was very lucky. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, look, I, I, I loved doing it. I was very passionate about the music. And so, yeah, Jimmy Cliff was a dream, you know, to have, mm. and, uh, and Bunny Way, like Jimmy Cliff, uh, he was managed by his brother at that point, Victor, if I remember correctly, who were just, just the nicest people, you know? I mean, absolute sort of joy. And, you know, I, I was doing, who else do we, I did NWA for a while, indie, um, Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson. I mean, I love Bowie and the Spiders from Mars. So, you know, Mick Ronson was it for me and that growing up. Um, so and at a certain point, a friend of mine, Sue Sawyer, who when I met during the on-club days and she had worked at Epic Records for a long time in the early days. So she got the Clash stuff and, you know, Cosmo Vinyl would send us the like, you know, uh, unreleased next tracks to play. And she was like a big, big supporter of the On Club. And she was getting ready to leave Polygram. And she got me, basically positioned me, got me, me. she goes, look, you're doing all this stuff. I was representing Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson were on, Polygram, and I was doing them independently because they'd hire independent publicists on certain projects, as was Michelle Shocked. So I went in and met them and got the job and stayed there 10 years, you know.
0: So uh, you also transitioned into focusing on movie soundtrack, right? Later Yeah, on.
1: yeah I did. Um, what was, was that the emphasis? Well, what happened was I was starting to A&R some bands and English bands and you know I'd always had a good relationship naturally enough because it's like a translator you know I mean it's like a a lot of it on every aesthetic and business level you know because things are done very differently in England so I'd always enjoyed that aspect and some of them weren't getting radio play you know well most of them weren't truthfully and that was such a big driver here that i started to explore the opportunities of trying to get them connected with young independent filmmakers it's like mid-90s now so you, you were getting like you know reservoir dogs pulp fiction train spy and these films were starting to pop along and i'm like riveted by independent film and i thought these would be nice matches so yeah the person who was actually doing soundtracks decided to leave LA and she she left and moved away and I uh, went to Ed Eckstein boss of president of uh, Mercury Records and uh, convinced him to do this wild soundtrack for Greg Araki's film nowhere and give me like two hundred thousand dollars to do it you know what i mean i've always said to ed he was the only president before afterwards during who would have ever had rolled that but it hit you know i love doing it you know we got a ton of bands this was like 96 in seven so we had like you know the bands of the day and with no money i mean really when you say that it's like this was we would everyone was getting was about four you write songs in there everyone's getting like five grand and I just didn't know any better, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, you
0: always show up the right place at the right time.
1: <laughs> no, look, I, I, I know. I'm. I feel. Look, don't get me. I'm well lucky. I know it. You know, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm hard, saying. You know, I worked hard. I always try and trying. Of course, of course. Your resume speaks to itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's like for you. You know what I mean? You, you, you have this thing, and that you're focused, and you love it. And why would you not do it great? You know what I mean? Right. I why would you not do it great so i love that world and it just i still do you know i um i realized at a point fairly early on that i wanted to be on the other side of it as a music supervisor partially because when you're at a label there's this predominance of jamming bands into a film Mm -hmm. because you're funding the soundtrack this is it's very different now in some ways it is you know obviously spotify so many things have changed in that business but Essentially, I realized like I had to be pure for the film. And I, 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 I mean, I can't put a song in a film that feels right. If I it, it's like almost physical pain. You know what I mean? If you see a scene, sorry, like, oh no, this is wrong, it's wrong. So I went out got an agent um, who told me I was, I don't know what the language factor is on this show. So I won't say what he actually said to me, but
0: uh,
1: <laughs> he said, you're f crazy. Um, and uh, took me on and never really sort of looked back. I love love doing it so much, and uh,
0: yeah. You know, Howard, uh, I'm inclined to believe you've done everything except running for president of the United States. <laughs> 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 for instance, uh, your novel. Uh, when did the idea struck you that you should write a, a noir novel? Uh,
1: you know, I, I'd had an idea that, this, that some of the subject For that first novel had been in my head for a long time and Mm -hmm. I finally thought you know like if not now when you know what I mean and I really just thought it was like I wanted to you know it's always good to have a new challenge you know Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: filmmaking is very collaborative which I love but I thought well because people are like why don't you write a screenplay I was like "Mm, I want to write a novel you know what I mean and naively thought it was a very singular thing to do and of course so many people help you along the way but um I started you know I actually probably it came out in 2015 and it took me a while to write it and truthfully I didn't have a big discipline at that point to write because I was so busy and I didn't you know I hadn't done it before um and I most I would go to like Jake's in Jamaica (laughs) a number of times and hold up there and wrote chunks of it you know what I mean? Because when mm-hmm. there was no internet there at that point,
0: right, 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 yeah.
1: which was such a, you know, it's good for me because I wasn't disciplined enough to put. Mm. There was no TV, you know, so it was like I, I, would go and just, I needed to go places where there were no distractions, you know, and learn mm-hmm. how to do it, and that's kind of was the process.
0: Right. So share with us uh, your first book, Once Upon a Time in LA: uh, Rock and Roll Noir Novel. So that's number two now.
1: Uh, that's the first one and Top Rankin is the second one.
0: Right, which we, we'll show Top Rankin in a second. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Yeah.
0: So Top Rankin just came out recently and uh, my sincere thanks for uh, having your publishers sent me a copy. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, that's fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm
0: heading to Mexico, so I'm going to take it.
1: Fantastic! Yes, well, I think you'll hopefully you'll have fun, and you'll definitely get a taste of what the first year of the On club was like in there. Yes,
0: you know? I I started really, I started. I started. Um, I did it, some reading.
1: It's a sort of merge of everything, and it it's sort of lived in the moment, and I'm really really happy. I had a hell of a lot of fun writing it, and I um you know it. it it was exactly what I wanted it to be it came out pretty much how I wanted it to come out and I I'm always doing this stuff but like basically Denise Hamilton who's a crime writer um I met her right as I was starting the first novel in a book signing she was she was about to do a book signing at a mystery bookshop and I told her I was getting ready to write once upon a time in LA and should I do a group or a class or something and She's, she said, she remembered, she goes, wait a minute. Did you have a club in Silver Lake back in 1980? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, you should write a story about that. And I'm like, well, that's not this book. You know, <laughs> not it wasn't in my head at all to write,
0: uh-huh. not,
1: truthfully. Um, and she gave me her card back in the day, you know, when I was getting ready to write the first one, she goes, look, most people never finish a book, a MacBook. If you ever get to the first draft, here's my number. And I sent her once upon a time, she goes, send it, this to, took a while, <laughs> you know, two, three years later, whatever it was, I sent her once upon a time, and she really became my mentor and editor, taught me how to get to a second draft, taught me, you know, so much that I figured after that, the only thing I could, you could, never th- you know what stranger would could ever give you a bigger gift which she was at the time so i thought i'm going to write top ranking for her i'm going to write the on club book for her you know what i mean and that's how yes, top Ranking came about In truth. Uh-huh.
0: wonderful we have some fascinating uh fun questions so uh great. our <laughs> producer and good friend eric hello Omer. howard
2: Hello, eric yeah, yeah i really, I really enjoyed, enjoyed this thing. and uh and it's great to finally uh, meet you virtually you know we have all been talking for so long now
1: it's crazy right right back at you and uh, thank you for having me seriously it's a bit of fun i hope I haven't got on too many kind of no
2: no this is great this is great being able to, <laughs> to hear your life story and and uh you know hear so much about the on club and and obviously top top ranking and and speaking of top ranking um uh, we teased it hopefully some of our our viewers and listeners already know but um on Saturday, October 23rd at the Grammy Museum in downtown Los Angeles, which is right in the heart of downtown uh, near, near Staples Center, right on the LA Live Complex. Uh, it's a very special event, one that we're both very, really excited about. And, uh, and obviously, Howard, thanks to you and fellow author and, and our mutual friend, Mark Wasserman. Uh, it's oh. top, <laughs> yes, Mark. It's top ranking the on club and birth of the LA Scott boom. And it's a panel discussion, book signings and special performances. And again, that's Saturday, October 23rd in the afternoon. It's a 1.30 p.m. Doors, 2 p.m. start time. Uh, check out this panel. Uh, in addition to, of course, Howard, you and Mark Losterman, we have both Jerry and Chuck from The Untouchables. We have from The Box Boys, Ivan and Greg, who I know are, are friends of yours as well, uh, Howard. Um, we have Norwood coming over from Fishbone. Uh, Greg <laughs> Greg Lee from HEPCAT, both of whom are obviously uh, so integral and, and key to um, uh, SKA, um, not only in the, in, the, in the 80s, but obviously to present day. Uh, Bill Bentley, who you touched on earlier, right? Former LA Weekly Music Editor. Yeah, and um, going be great, by the way. Yeah, he's going to be great. Um, we're going to announce one other um, panelist here in a minute. And then both the Box Boys and Untouchables are going to do very special shows. So the box boys who've not performed in about 40 years since, since the on-club days. Exactly. I Which is, I can't which I can't is amazing. Play. Yeah, they're going to do a short set. The Untouchables will do a short set. Um, we have Mr. Junior Francis here hosting the night and then coming in from Chicago, uh, none other than DJ Chuck Wren of Jump Up Records. But um, one additional panelist, which is hot off the press, so to speak.
1: Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne um, has kindly accepted our invite. So
2: great. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <clears throat> so excited. So I'm excited. excited.
1: And like I, I don't think you'll mind me saying that he would come under the catalyst of the quintessential on-club fan who was getting in underage. <laughs> in underage. <laughs>
0: I, and I, I don't want to point out that uh, history and posterity, when we say this, 20, 30 years from now, that Eric uh, was instrumental in putting this together. I I don't think anyone else could have. Well, so so so, so uh, and everyone, really and truly have to give um, like again, just yeah.
1: unequivocally, and I'm so grateful for you doing this because it's the sort of thing that we'd sort of had thoughts about these kind of things mm-hmm. over the years and nothing ever happened and you and then
0: eric makes it happen sir. that's why yes. well no i i, I credit it. that and yes. actually i want, want to touch on what well, you're, sort of you're a talking you know, we're talking, you're giving you <laughs> <talking. laughs> no no to accept all right so what people I, I accepted, and I, and I yes it, right you have to because like uh howard said we talk about these things but to actually you know theory put it into practice that's where it becomes extremely challenging and sometimes impossible and you just said okay this is what you guys want it happened like that, so I want to give you credit.
2: Well, yes, and when and when Mark, who, who we interviewed uh, on a few episodes ago, um, obviously Mark and Howard had this idea, and Howard, you've had this for a long time, but um, but no, really, really glad that obviously you know as they say it takes a village, but you know, anytime any any connections and, and the couple of panels that Junior and I have done at the Grammy Museum obviously helped open open the door to this, but um, this is this is the first time we're doing one that has so many different layers. And really, when we talk about the history of L.A. Ska, we're talking about pretty much the formation of it. In this, in this instance, right? I mean, between between what you did at the On Club and having the Box Boys, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't go much much further back if if anything before. You know, let's be honest. Um, this is an afternoon event, all ages, which is which is uh, extra special. Tickets are only fifteen dollars. GrammyMuseum.org has all the information, including. Uh, uh, the covid protocols obviously we're all going to be really really safe on this on this event so we're we're super excited about this um how did um howard how did you and mark meet
1: well mark actually found me when he was starting to research the uh his book and i was writing top Rankin. and i will say this and a you know i haven't met mark in person yet which i'm so looking forward to and you know truthfully just mind-blowingly good and i'm giving a plug for it right now because even the chapters around you know the uh box boys the untouchables who obviously i've known since the day i'm learning stuff yeah i didn't know you know And is uh, is what was great about with mark was I, a we have fantastic conversations and hit it off but it was also like we were like it was good for me to have a target. I was like, okay, we both let's just both do this. Let's get it out. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. like 2020 because that would have been our 40th, 40th anniversary, but 2020 kind of went away. Um, not because we hadn't finished, you know, I finished, but what it was like, I felt like almost responsibility to keep writing. Like I wrote every weekend, right? Saturday, Sunday, all 2019, eight hours a day. Die- you know, I wanted yeah. to get this novel done, and sure. I'm grateful for. Him And I I think for both of us, it was a mutual support thing, you know, and to a degree, Aaron as well. But Mark and I were in very constant contact. Right. And um, it's a blast. It's been a blast. You know, it was a total blast. Yeah.
2: Well, and this event is also really special. Uh, Both you and Mark will be not only on the panel, but you will have books available for sale at the Grand Museum. Uh, fans, if you if you have your books, you can bring it there. But they're going to sign uh, do, do autograph signing. So it's uh, it's a wonderful. Wonderful afternoon event there. Yeah,
1: um, I'm so happy to sign as many people. If you've got it already, don't feel weird bringing it because you don't have to buy another one. I mean, you could buy another one for a friend, of course. If I'm, so I probably shouldn't have heard that, <laughs> <laughs> I should have said that because the publisher will be thrilled to hear I just said that. But like, truthfully, I'll, you know, anyone who's got one, bring it on down and we'll we'll sign you up. Yes,
2: yes. I'm going to ask you a question about this book here in a minute. Uh, Mark, speaking of Mark Wasserman, he had a question he wanted us to ask you. Okay not to put you on the spot with this but during the on club days what band that played there was your favorite and and, and it could and it could be for any reason
1: i think i can do that i can't do that all right um, <laughs> there were nights you know and there were so many nights that I, I'm really, you know, I'm not being, I'm being diplomatic to a degree, but I'm also being honest, like I couldn't pick between it's fair. some really memorable nights and a lot of them come back, you know, as a catalyst of writing and stuff and brought a lot of great smiles back on so many different levels, but yeah. you know, look, there were some great bands there and there's not been enough notoriety outside of the Untouchables for so many of them and I'm really appreciative of you guys doing this I mean, and really from the heart for like you know the extremes and you know i know rebel rockers have obviously had a long career but uh, some of the bands that kind of came and went that were really too good to have come and went you know what i mean
2: yeah no true true um so speaking of your book which i thoroughly enjoyed and loved and, and i and i can't say that i've read too many books like this where um you know part part fiction part non-fiction but how do you how do you choose how do you choose what to, and this is obviously a general question or or you can get as specific as you want, but how do you choose what to keep true, right? Versus not. And and the other thing is that, and we talked about this off camera, but the way that it transported me back when when you mentioned what what the DJ was playing or or what somebody was listening to where you talk about, not to give it away, but talks about, you know, Marley when he was diagnosed with cancer. but, But so many, so many, true to life or so many things that kind of put me in that moment um but obviously there was this other you know things involved but but like how do you in in general go about choosing and deciding uh like like what's your process
1: um you know obviously this is a very strange book to write in the sense that it's you know it's obviously a big chunk of my life and i you know so i to fictionalize it you know i don't really I mean, I love noir genre and I've always you know, always thought the music biz was rife, perfect setting for noir stuff and there wasn't much written from, you know, there were most a lot of band bios, things like that, but not much written from a fictional but music business point of view, you know, and this one is Wall Street, that Once Upon a Time was more inside, you know, a lot, a lot of people were really involved in the record, these kids are like, trying to come through. What I wanted was an authentic taste of 1980 right so I wanted it to be like kind of lived in the moment with none of this sort of going oh how cute there's no cell phones there's no you know just as it was but you need a sort of catalyst for a story Um, and so the without without breaking it down I needed fictional artists Mm -hmm. to drive that and it 1980 really played nice, you know, as I was writing it, because so many real things were happening that Mm -hmm. were colour it and in some places have a plot aspect to them. And so, you know, you'd got like Ronald Reagan running and, you know, for president, which seemed as unlikely as a certain other person getting (laughs) time you know it was like this cheesy washed up b-movie actor you know and you know there's other elements you know without that was truthful and in order to illustrate the truth of them i needed to have fictional characters to live that truth that was authentic to what was going on but you know it some of it's painful stuff and some Mm -hmm. of fun and some of it's dark and uh you know it just needed the characters to populate it but uh you know i uh yeah, it sort of shows itself. I mean, I I know it sounds corny, but I think a lot of writers feel like once you start writing, certain characters kind of take over books. You know, things drive you, and you sort of you just channel it all along. Right. Um, you know. Um. So it 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 was a. Yeah. I mean, when I look, it's always strange when you're writing because in the moment, I'm just like I said, I wrote it to a real discipline. Like, it was just flying out. Me. I mean, I had so much fun writing it and I don't know how much detailed thought it just I wrote what felt right. Sure. And that's what it ended up as, you know, and it's uh, the only funny thing for me is people are speculating endlessly on various aspects of what's real and what's not, which I'm totally good with. I will say yeah. it's a, that's, that that's
2: kind of what's kind of the fun of it, too. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, exactly. And, and look, there is a lot of truth in there. A lot of stuff. <laughs> um, so it's it's certainly authentic if you want to look at 1980. And there's some of the fictional aspects um, were as needed, you know.
2: And 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 the playlists or the music that the DJ in the book played was that was that pretty on. This no 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 pun intended. Was it was a pretty on par with what, what what you played. It was
1: exactly it was okay. you know, I I I was like, you know, look, it, it was exactly that. Okay. You know, I, I yeah. know the songs and you know, obviously there's some stuff, just peripheral stuff, to what was going on in Los sure. at the time. So you do hear some other songs when yeah. they're not at the On Club that were also what was going on. But yeah, I've got a really it's funny, i got a very vivid memory and I actually kept the journal that year, but I, wow. I, I had a look through it just to check a few dates here and there. Um, mm. So it's, it's really, I didn't use it as much as I thought I might. I ended up, I, I, but I, I looked through it at the time and pulled, you know, just to, just a little memory triggers here and there yeah. You know? Yeah. what comes back.
0: Yeah. You know, now you have it, your journal it, from 1980.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. yeah Yeah. it's amazing that you that that you still have it and you haven't lost it
1: (laughs) it's funny i got like 80 and there was a booking like a you know my booking thing which was so scattered but like just bands scrolled through you know um so yeah i wonder how many
2: of those phone numbers are still valid too
1: that, yeah, it's funny, really, right? I mean, there was not many area codes going on then. Let's put it that true, way. True,
2: true, true. Yeah, you no, know, this just, is this is a wonderful read. How can uh, how can our viewers and listeners pick up top of it?
1: You can get it anywhere. Like, I mean, it's certainly on all the kind of big sort of places where you <clears> order it. Um, you know, I'm always trying to push people to buy from their local bookshops. You know, especially these days to support them. So yeah. if you're in LA, as I guess a lot of people are. Gonna to come to this will be, or well, most people are, you know, book soup, um for sure has been great, and they we they, I love book soup It's my favorite bookshelf, but you know, anywhere can anywhere should have it for you.
0: And how is the sale going so far? Are you pleased with it?
1: You know, I haven't I haven't heard lately, but it seemed to be out the gate pretty well, and lovely reaction. I mean, honestly, like I I gotta say this from a mix of people who've written to me and some. You know some friends from the era that I've been out of touch with who you know it's been, it, I've had the best response to. I, I, I'm honestly, I'm kind of almost um, I don't know how to put it, but it's I, I'm very emotional about it because it's been everything I could have hoped for in that respect. In terms right. of getting sure, it. and, uh, it's like it's know, like it's like giving birth, yeah, and also sort of you know, hearing from people again, like you conjure up the past and. Mm-hmm. Past, you know in the lovely ways has popped back up to come from is it conversations with people and it's been sure uh, sure so,
2: uh, you've also um just going going a little backwards uh junior touched on some of the publicity and, and music supervision but you also work with richard branson correct
1: yeah v2 um well, can, I imagine, can you talk about that yeah i mean i'd love to uh it basically funny enough i just gone out on my own i like I said, Brian Louts, CIA, who became my agent for many years, taken me on. And like, I got a call um, from Kate Hyman, who's a pretty legendary AR woman and a great person. And they were looking for someone to go and do their film and TV. And I really had had no interest, I was like, I said I'd go meet them because I felt that was just, you know, I didn't know Kate and I'd always heard about her. So we met and I met her and Dan Beck, who was president, who had been an epic back in Clash Days and fantastic guy. And I really wasn't intending to do it. Honestly, I was like I had my films. I was doing Larry Clark's Another Day in Paradise. I was doing Greg Araki's Splendor. I was busy. It was wow. Yeah. But it was something new, you know, and it, the record companies at the time and continue to a degree to be like these big ocean line you know you were trying to change something and it's like you can't change direction that's you know there was a lot of things that came to pass that I could you know to some degree could visualize coming to pass you know so and they had amazing artists they just played me all this stuff and I was like oh my god you've got these great things so we I went to work there um we I convinced them that Santa like <laughs> I was like Santa Monica would be a great spot to have a little office, you know what I mean? Because I'm living out in Malibu and they were like, well, maybe Silver Lake. I'm like, mm. you know, <laughs> people are moving here. I, 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 I've come playing on this story, I think, to Kate and Dan before, but basically, uh, weirdly enough, after we started our little office, all the companies did start moving to Santa Monica, Universal, wow, Sandwich, sure. so <laughs> many labels, right? But anyway, to the point was we got this great little place right on ocean avenue um arizona this old little house There was three or four because the company was based primarily in new york so there were three or four of us out in la brilliant little office and um richard branson was not super like hands-on day-to-day but he would show up Periodically, and I, I've got lovely memories. Actually, of like he'd show up and he, he'd come off his virgin flight, and he'd bring some of the, you know, people who were working on the flight with him, come down for a visit. <laughs> it was great. I mean, it was it was it couldn't yeah. have been formal, and it was it was a really great couple That's, of years. Ago. Yeah, yeah sure that, was. that was
2: that was a good experience. And <laughs> I got
1: to work with you know Kate had uh, bought in the Moby record play. Okay, and. I but she sent it to me and she hadn't actually signed, you, you know, Moby had been dropped by Electra and uh, you know, staggeringly, and he'd made this record, and she got, I was like, oh my god, like for my world, you know, I was like, this is staggering. And oh. I, I we had an incredible run with it, you know, it was like I very selective. Yes, like think for any of our world, you only want to call people when there's a really tell them so You got to got to hear this. You know, you would be very selective with that. And I'd got hold of heads of music of you know the different studios. I was like, you know, I'm playing this on your car in your office way. Well, you, this one needs to come home. You know, and we just went mind blowing mm-hmm. on film, and TV stuff. I mean, every song of that was licensed yeah. film or some yeah. visual media. Um, and uh, yeah, Moby, it was a lovely experience. So I'm very grateful for that time there. You know, honestly, I hadn't intended it and it was just one of these nice surprises. You know? Yeah,
2: yeah, no, I can imagine it was, it was a great experience. Um, a question for me, um, because I, I obviously now with so many streaming platforms and services and obviously video games, a lot of people are discovering music that way, clearly. Um, you know, my wife and I, between, between the Netflixes and the, and the Hulu's and Amazon Prime's and HBO and all that. But, and I'm amazed that I find myself Shazamming, right? Like, what's this song? Yeah, so often, because I don't want to wait until the end credit. But, but how do you, but you as a music supervisor, how do you decide, because you touched on earlier how, how obviously you are very specific, but how do you decide between like in a given TV show or movie, to place a, a classic tune, right, and and obviously you have amazing taste in the in the in the classic, you know, heritage or vintage music, so to speak, that we talked about earlier. But like versus some of the newer music, obviously I know it's uh, I would imagine it's situational based. But 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 how do you? What's your process like in that sense?
1: Well, you know the when I'm doing a period film. You know, to cover that first. Um, my biggest obsession is to be absolutely authentic, like literally to the month. Like I, you know, okay, we were doing Mike Mills' "20th Century Women," and, and Mike, you know, grown up, you know, Santa Barbara at that time, and you know he was, yes, we, you know, he. It was it was very much a sort of you know we both had a. Stuff to get done, but I was like, he's like, Oh, let's can we use something from London Calling? And I mean, we'd you know, we don't have much money. It was a normal drill, you know. I was like, I was like, Wait a minute, I didn't come out till Christmas in England, it was January, and we're in July. Wow, and yeah, it's like I hate it if I see a film where it's even a great song's used, it's not the right, you know. And it's like you're trying to do a period film, you want it to be authentic, you don't want sure. one thing to pull you out. So, my And I'm about to start. So I I can't can't talk about it yet, but it's been I've just had this long conversation with a very cool filmmaker. We're about to do a a great film together, I think. And at any rate, it was like, you don't really want to remind use the cheap cheap in the sense of easy, emotional, easy thing. I'd rather have an authentic song from any given year. That you haven't been hearing since, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you go right to the moment where the filmmaker wants you to be, not because you've been hearing this song on the radio and you mm-hmm. remember this, that, or the other. I think, and I'm not saying, you know, it has to be never heard of, but you don't want things that have just been in the current ears forever.
2: Sure.
1: So, the flip side is, you know, the Sex Life series I just worked on for Netflix, we were very just dis- about new. And uh, well, there are some flashbacks in that series. So there was authentic things from, you know, 2010, 12 era. But, you know, Stacey Rukeyser, the showrunner, was incredibly open to the new. And if it was emotional and it worked, that's to me my biggest great yeah. thing. What, what would these, what, what would this character be listening to? First of all, you want it to feel authentic for the, you know, the period thing we covered. But in terms of the now, you know, you have to try and sort of get in people's heads a little bit and just think about these characters and what right. their background is and what they would be drawn to. And then the rest of it's emotion. You know, you want to feel emotion that's real. And um, that show was like, we had an incredible time. It was great to just be all over the place with new stuff. And, you know, there's some things you would heard of, of for sure, but, um, you know, there's there's just great music out there. So I, I'm, I'm kind of like, it's very situational
2: yeah I, don't yeah.
1: Look, I put it this way i don't look to put an old song in a contemporary show unless there's some awfully good reason for it you okay know
2: I mean? yeah yeah no that makes sense yeah that's fascinating um we'll, we'll want to remind our listeners and viewers howard parr has top rankin a punk ska noir novel which you can pick up uh on hopefully at your local bookstore you can pick it up <laughs> online Uh, yes uh, online or you can come to the grammy museum if you're a los angeles based or you want to take a little or you want to take a little trip down here to los angeles uh, on saturday october 23rd in the afternoon uh, doors at 1 2 p.m start time it's top ranking the on club and birth of the la ska boom it's a panel discussion book signings and very special performances Uh, as part of the panel discussion we have howard parr here if you want to uh we just even though we touched on it quite a bit, but we've literally just scratched the surface as it relates to the On Club, because we definitely want to leave a lot of that discussion for this yeah, yeah. panel. So, yeah. so, to hear a lot more about that um, really important club and, and, and the scene that came out of LA at that time, um, come on out. Uh, Mark Wasserman, who is a musician, podcaster, and author of Scow Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, another really important book uh, if you're a fan of. Uh, the music that, that we all love and, and appreciate so much. Uh, Jerry and Chuck from the Untouchables will be on the panel, as well as Ivan Wong and Greg Souders from the Box Boys, which I'm personally really excited to finally see them, uh, yeah. as well as Nord Fisher from Fishbone, who used to, who used to go into the On Club, uh, and Greg Lee, who's a, who's a friend of ours from Hepcats. As well. I can't wait to
1: meet Greg because I'm. Yes, never, like I said, I never knew that he formed the band and he used to go to the club. So that's like double exciting. I love that band.
2: Yeah, well, we'll, we'll uh, yeah. Greg is Greg is uh, such a such a wonderful human. Uh, Bill Bentley, who you mentioned earlier, who was a former LA Weekly music editor and author of the uh, of, Sm- of Smithsonian Rock and Roll Live and Unseen, uh, and I know that you've known Bill for a long time, and then one additional uh, very important panelist Howard
1: Lawrence Fishburne. that's so right I'm excited he's gonna come and uh, <clears> this <throat> with us uh, it should be should be fun I I'm, yeah I'm very excited and uh, yeah yeah that's yeah. a place to get your book come on down. you might as well get us so we could sign it right for you Ab-
2: absolutely please do that um, um,
1: especially for people who pop in that we haven't seen in a long time um, yeah great
2: It'll be a little reunion, I'm sure. Uh, all the details uh, at GrammyMuseum.org. It's an all ages affair. Junior Francis here is going to host the night, or the afternoon rather, and DJ Chuck Rain from Jump Up's coming out. So. Did you
0: mention the performance? You- uh,
2: maybe I didn't this time. No, Thank I not you. think you did. Very special performances, one time only. Uh, Box Boys first performance in 40 years <laughs> as well as the untouchables a very special performance by the untouchables so this is all in the uh at the downtown la at the grammy museum so mm-hmm. uh so Howard as we as we um wrap this up is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would definitely want to make sure that viewers and listeners know about
1: no, I think this was wonderful, and I hope people come and they're going to hear some great stories. I mean, I've I've heard a few stories that I've been reminded of that I didn't remember until I was reminded of yeah. by Sir Ivan and uh, especially. So uh, it's going to be fun, and I, yeah, just come on down. Mm-hmm.
0: Do yes, I think, think so. Miss this event will be a mistake of Titanic proportion, Howard. I'm, sorry? I'm saying for all for for and LA to miss this. Yeah. They would be committing us in a titanic proportion. I'm kidding. We talk about an old school reunion. Yes. That's right. Never before. Yes. That's Never right. before seen perhaps anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. And I'm not <laughs> just throwing out words. <laughs> no, this is, this is <laughs> really special. It's kidding. Me. The excitement it. is really and truly building. Really and, building. And that it is.
2: a little surprise at the end. Yes. Excitement right?
0: really <laughs> is building. Really yeah. So I think we're just about finished. Eh? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. So I want to ask uh, our viewers and perhaps listeners to follow us on History of Eleskia on Instagram. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our Facebook group. Please follow me on Instagram at Junior Francis. And this series yeah. is produced by my good friend here, Eric Cola for Rockery Radio. Please follow at Rockery underscore radio on Instagram for fresh rock, rhythm, and soul on Jamaican music inspired daily playlists. And Howard, where can people find you on social media?
1: Uh, I'm based, ha, I, Just my name, Instagram. Mm-hmm. I think it's weirdly, it's, I think it says par Howard, but anyway, it's uh, just my name, same Facebook, Twitter. Uh, yes, yeah.
2: wow. Yeah. And, and and thank you and
1: so. Just under my name has all the book links and, you know- Oh, great. Also, the one thing I do wanna tell people is there is a Spotify playlist just to sort of sequential with all the songs. I love it. In it and uh, you can go and get a taste of that before or after you read it, but preferably during. <laughs>
2: yes, 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 a great, wonderful soundtrack. And thank you not only for for uh, sitting here with us today and not only for the, uh, in advance of October 23rd, but just for everything that you've contributed to to the LA scene. Um, you know, with such a vital and, and important part of it, uh, dating back to early, early, early on, and obviously everything you've done since then. So we, we, we appreciate you and and thank you for everything.
1: I'll be right back, guys. I, this has been fun from top to bottom, and it's going to get funner soon. Yes,
0: <laughs> I, to come. I think you'll prove to a lot of people that the sky's the limit. <laughs> Sky's yes. the limit. Oh,
1: man. I'm going to take you right back to the inspiration you gave me at the top of 2020. That's all I could say. I'm just, you know, back, right back at you. Yes.
2: Yeah. Junior, and yes. thank you so much for everything. And thank oh, you for of course, all of our of uh, listeners and viewers. Um, you can find on our YouTube channel previous interviews like the one that we had with Mark Wasserman um, a few months ago, as well as a lot of players. Um you know, that are on stage and as Junior mentioned behind the scenes. So we thank you. Thank you all out there. Howard, have a wonderful uh, rest of your day, Junior. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. Bye bye.